Scripture in Trials Part 1. We will be discussing Trials Part 2. And so I will read uh, verses 2 through 12, focusing this morning on verses 5 through 12. Verse 2, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed to the wind. By, the person, by that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away, for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is a man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love Him. You may be seated. May God add a blessing to His Word. Last week I shared the trials we as a body faced over the past year. And it was a prelude to examining James chapter 2, James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. And the title of that message was The Six Truths We Find in Trials That Aid in Our Spiritual Maturity, which is the theme of our study of the book of James. To mature in our spirit. To mature in our faith. And if you recall, we covered the first three trials. The first being that we'll all face them. Not a matter of if, but it's a matter of when. Followed by the second truth, and that they produce something. They produce spiritual maturity. And finally, the third truth that we covered last week is they perfect us in the maturity of Christ. They perfect us in the maturity of Christ. Now, when we look at verses 2 through 4, we see a synopsis of how it should work, right? Right? We're going to fall into trials. They produce something, which is steadfastness and spiritual maturity, and they perfect us in Christ. That's about as brief as you can get when it's talking about trials and what the purpose is. But what happens if we struggle in them? What if we find ourselves being weakened by them? And we're losing our focus. We're losing our hope. We're weak in our faith. Well, in this morning's examination of the remainder of our text, verses 5 through 12, we will uncover the three remaining truths that James provides. And they also answer the questions, what if... We struggle in trials. And I think as we all do. And so this morning we will examine verses 5 through 12, highlighting the remaining truths that we find in those texts. 
starting off with verse 5. If anyone of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. You know, when we're in the midst of a trial and we feel weak in our faith and we don't know how this is going to turn out, we don't even know if God is involved, which He is, and we seem to be perplexed as to what to do. Because that's what happens when we're in a trial, right? We want answers, and we need them now. Because like I said last week, we're surrounded by them. There's no way of escaping it. If you try to run, you'll just be tired when you have to deal with it. So what do you do? First thing James says is, you need to pray for wisdom. You need to pray for wisdom. And the reason he preaches and prescribes this is because trials require right thought and right action. Trials require right thought and right action. And we get that by way of wisdom. You know, when, we, when trials befall us, like let's say a, a financial crisis, we can consult with experts. That's okay. We can sit down with tax advisors and people gifted in aiding us and dealing with whatever the trial is if it's complex in the world. Human wisdom based on accumulated knowledge and experience is valuable in such cases. And there's nothing wrong with consulting experts in the midst of a trial if they could provide the understanding of the situation and maybe courses of actions that you need to take, like a tax problem. So there's nothing wrong with that. But at the same time, when God's Word is very specific about the trial that you're facing, and He gives guidance as to exactly how you're to proceed, that's when we don't go to the world and seek an answer to our situation. I'm reminded of women who have an unplanned pregnancy and look at all the options on the table, and one of which is an abortion. God's Word is very specific about how you are to deal with that. There's no need to consult the world as to what their opinion is. But in times of things like expertise, let's tax situations or things of that nature, it's okay. However, the information we receive from these experts in the world always needs to be filtered, influenced, and guided by godly wisdom. Wisdom being used here by James means knowledge for godly and upright living. Discerning between that which is good and that which is wrong in any given situation. It's our moral compass. It provides right thinking in a given situation. But it also means right action, right? Taking that which we receive from God in prayer and doing it. What good is wisdom if we never act on it? What good is you to come to me and ask for advice, or I come to you and ask for advice because you've been there, done that, seen that, and what advice you give me, which is godly advice, which I would hope to be, given the fact that we're brothers and sisters in Christ, what good is it if I don't use it? What good is it if you don't use the godly advice that God gives you? 
James himself says, don't just be hearers, but be doers. Wisdom is of no effect if it never fails to influence your situation. For example, I interviewed a man who was profess- who's a professing Christian. I meet a lot of fascinating people in my job, so I love it. For those of you who don't know, I'm bivocational. I'm not a full-time pastor. And so I was talking to this man who was a professing Christian, and we had to talk about his finances. He was in financial problems. And he had some tax issues that I had to get some information on. And the story was is that he didn't, he was living with his sister, and his sister had two children, his niece and nephew. And he claimed them on his taxes because a friend of his who does well in taxes, who's very smart in taxes, who's who's not a CPA, <laughs> self-taught, right? So there's your first warning. And, and as a result, he says, hey, you can claim those two kids on your taxes because they live with you and they have the last same name. And I said, so what'd you do? I claimed him on my taxes. And I got a healthy, re- a healthy return on my taxes that helped me in my situation. But then when I confronted him on it, about whether that was legal, he realized what he had done was illegal. You see, you could go to the world and get all the expert advice, but if you're not guided, this man was a professed Christian, if you're not guided by the wisdom of God, you will make your situation worse. So anything that you receive from the world, Experts, certified CPAs, lawyers, it doesn't matter. It has to be influenced, filtered, and guided by godly wisdom. Because this is what we are accountable to, even more so than the laws of this world. Now, in relationship to wisdom, James says that we should ask God. And this brings us to a very important aspect of Asking for wisdom. And that's prayer. Prayer. When James says ask, it's an imperative to prayer. And this prayer is the first and most important work that we'll ever do in any given situation, especially during a trial. Many times in the midst of a trial, we immediately try to go and escape it. We try to run from it. We don't want to deal with it. We try to find the easy way out. I used to tell my kids all the time when I asked them to do a chore, don't half-step it. Give you your full energy, your full focus. And there's a reason why we're to pray right out of the gate when we're faced with trials. You guys are familiar with this verse. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. We're to be anxious about anything, not to be anxious about anything. You don't think a trial brings anxiety? Oh, they do. And why does God want us not to be anxious? Because an anxious person makes poor decisions. And we're to put our full trust in the Lord in any 
given situation. Secondly, we're to pray for strength because trials in life rob us of our joy and they weaken our faith at times and we need strength in Him. 1 Chronicles 16.11 Seek the Lord and His strength. Seek His presence continually. When you're in the midst of a trial, you will pray more as you always should have. Every waking moment you're going to be praying. And praise God that you are. Because that's exactly what He calls us to do. And when we pray, we receive strength from the Lord. We, re, we, re, we receive wise counsel from the Lord. Another reason why we need to pray is it prepares us to receive the wisdom we request from God that He so generously gives. Jeremiah 33.3 Call to me and I will answer you. And will tell you great and hidden things that you have not known. You see, Jeremiah was in the midst of a trial here. He was in prison. And he was praying for Israel. And God says, continue to pray, Jeremiah, because what I'm going to provide to you is something you don't even know about the future of Israel. You see, you don't know the trial that you're in. You don't know the ending. You only know the beginning. And you're going to experience what's in between the two. And so when we pray to God, we pray that we wouldn't be anxious. We pray for strength, but we also pray so that our hearts and our spirit are able and ready to receive that which God has for us in this given situation. It's that important. Now it takes prayer because we can't receive wisdom in any other way. Yes, we have the living Word of God. And we are to read it every day and to learn and to gain wisdom and knowledge and understanding of Christ. But it, bring, it takes wisdom that God gives to bring the full illumination of His Word in our spirit and in our mind so that it brings clarity to our situation and how He desires to lead you in it. So prayer is critical in receiving the wisdom for right thinking and right action. Now when James says he gives generously, what this means is not liberally as we would think. In fact, some of your versions might say liberally, but the Greek word that's used there means something a little bit different. It means that God has a singular motive in giving you wisdom. Meaning, it is his desire to give to further the welfare of you. In other words, God is going to answer you specifically in relationship to your request. He's going to guide you specifically. And you'll do it without reproach. You see, sometimes in those trials that we're responsible for, because of the decisions that we've made, that has put us in a predicament that, that we now face, we feel like we're undeserving of relief. We should suffer the consequences of our actions as a hard lesson to learn. And boy, the enemy is right there. Yep, you really messed up now. Why would God even help you? 
We may have consequences that we have to face. But God never shuts the door of His grace on you. He never turns a deaf ear to you. Even if it's your fault, He does not stand up there and say, Nope, you made this mess, you clean it up. He's always there for His children. Just like you are for your kids when they mess up. How do I know that? Because he's done it. He's done it in my life, and I've heard it done in yours by some of the stories that you've shared with me. So he does it without reproach. He gives it freely, liberally, specifically to the situation that you're facing. Now, having said all about that, about wisdom and prayer, there is a condition that we must understand, and we find that in verses 6 through 8. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. Now, here in this condition, there's a, there's a condition that's twofold, Right? The first one is faith. The first one is faith. Now, we know what faith is, right? It's the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not yet seen, Hebrews 11.1. And we also know that faith is a gift of God and it's not something intrinsic to ourselves. It's not something you develop on your own. It is something given to you, but you are required to nurture it by prayer and reading and trusting in God. And the more we do, the stronger our faith becomes. And how do we do that? Well, faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. We need to be in the Word of God. We need to be praying the Word of God. We need to be trusting the Word of God. And when we do that, the Word of God says our faith will be strong. But if we don't, it'll be weak. I bet you right now, if you just took stock of your life situation in the times in which you just didn't have time to read the Word, you didn't have time to pray, or the prayers that you uttered up were very cursory, very short, that you felt a little weakness in your life as it relates to faith. So we need to have a strong faith. It also says that we're not to doubt. Now, doubt here means to have a variance with oneself. It's a, it's a research data term that measures the distance between two sets of data points, right? The variance between this and that. As it relates to faith, this variance is between the faith we should have versus the faith that we actually do have. And if our faith is weak, James says, we'll be like the waves in a sea tossed to and fro. Because we doubt, we won't receive what the Lord is giving us as wisdom. Why would we? We have not put our full trust in Him. As a result, we have the strong possibility of becoming double-minded, meaning we're hoping for the Lord to, to work it out, but we don't really trust the Lord to do that. Ever found yourself there? Now, 
And I think in our life, we've all had periods of doubt. I suffered mine early in my walk. Why? Because I was new in faith. I mean, this is all new. And when I first hit my first trial, I was like, Lord, are you, are you able to do this? I never question whether God can do something. I always question whether he would do it for me. And because we have a sinful nature, guess what? There's a war going on between trusting God and not trusting God. You know, the disciples doubted. Thomas doubted. James doubted. John the Baptist doubted. And in each instant, Christ did something very special. He revealed himself in a unique way in order to address their doubt. He does the same for us. And when he does, it forever changes you. In the midst of one of my very first trials, I was praying fervently, as we're called to do, fervently. And God showed up in a marvelous way to show me the way in which I was to go. And it was not the way I wanted. It was not the way I expected. But it was the way, and he confirmed it in his word. And from that point on, I had confidence in that what the Lord gave me is what I need to do. And as I grew and mature in the Lord, my doubt faded. There is nothing my Father can't do. There is nothing my Father won't do for me, even if I'm the problem. He'll deal with that too. And so look back in time when you had a trial and God showed up in an amazing way. Remember that because that anchors and gives you assurance in your faith. Because how he has acted in the past is how he's going to act in the future. His promises are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. He'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. He will always guide you. He will always show you. He will always give you wisdom. Why? Because he desires you as his children to walk in the light of his word and the strength of his spirit. That's his desire. And so when we ask for wisdom, he will give it to you. Don't think he won't. Don't listen to the enemy. It's a guarantee. It's going to happen. But when you do get it, walk in it. If it's not the answer you were expecting or desire, then get rid of that desire and follow what the Lord is showing you. And so the fourth promise we see in our text this morning is that trials require right thinking, right action, and right prayer without doubting. Verses 9 through 11. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flowers falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. You know, verse 9 again 
seems disjointed a little bit and out of place as it relates to trials. But when you study it in its proper context, it has relevance in what we're talking about this morning. In fact, it provides us the fifth truth that we're dealing with. Isn't that trials help us focus on what is important and what is eternal and not what is worldly and what is temporal? Here we have two people that James introduced us to, and they represent two different life situations. Now, it would be easy to look at the verse and say that the poor man is more righteous than the rich man because of his poverty, but to do that would be to misunderstand what James is saying here. What James is revealing is that regardless of where we find ourselves in life, we are to rejoice in the Lord. Our attitude toward material things is a good indicator of our spiritual maturity. How we handle our poverty says as much as to how we handle riches. In fact, I would say there's more challenges to handling riches than there is to handle poverty. Regardless of our material wealth or lack thereof, we are to be the same with our Lord in rejoicing in our circumstances. But let us examine each one to have a full understanding of what James is showing us here. The first one is the lowly brother. When we look at the words used to describe this man, we see that he is a poor in materialism. And why do we know that? Because he's comparing him to the rich in materialism. This obviously is James' time, you know, during this time of his epistle. Back then, they always seemed to see wealth as a blessing from God and poverty as a man without blessing from God. You know, sometimes we uh, think that way in the world today. Wow, look at them. They're blessed. They have a house. They have a, a brand new truck, a brand new boat. And they must be living right, man. They must be really tithing. We can fall in the same trap. As a result of being both poor in wealth and low in stature, this trial would have made this man quite low in his assessment of himself. See, that's what poverty can do. That's how Satan uses it. You're, you're not worth much materially, therefore you're not worth much in any other regard. And James is calling this man to rejoice and take pride in his situation. The word boast here is a fascinating word. And it's only used by James twice, but it's used multiple times by Paul. And what this word means is to profess loudly something that you have a right to be proud of. Now on the surface we'd say, whoa, 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 we're not supposed to be proud of anything. And so why does James call us, this person or us, in their lowly state to take pride in it? You know, when Darla and I were struggling with finances, that felt pretty low, owed a lot of money. And if someone like James came and told me to take pride in my situation, I would have been very confused. Like, what? what? <laughs> I'm swimming in debt. What are you talking about? But here is what I misunderstood about what James is saying here. My worth is not based on materialism or my debt. 
My value before God is not based on my financial situation. God does not and never will view me through the lens of wealth or poverty. Man does. This world does. In fact, it's a trap, if you really think about it. This world says, you must have this and you must have that. But when you buy this and that, because the world says you have to have it, then you go into debt because you didn't have the money to afford it. And when you're in debt, then guess what? The world looks at you down because you're in debt. I interview a lot of people, and I tell you what, when we start talking about finances, we could talk about criminal behavior. We could talk about past drug experiences. We could talk about alcohol. We could talk about broken marriages. We could talk about being fired from a job. But you go to finances, and their whole countenance changes because they're embarrassed, because their value is in that. And that's what James is saying here. Your value is not determined by your wealth or lack thereof. Your value is determined by my son, Jesus Christ. And you are to boast in that. You are to take pride in that. For it's a righteous pride. In Luke, we read, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. We put far too much importance on this, not this on possessions. On possessions, I was joking with my daughter. We went to, uh, to the lake on Friday to winterize the cabin there, and uh, we were talking about, uh, she, she bought... Cheyenne uh, or Lucy, she's only one, so I can tell her that what she's getting for Christmas. Anyway, um, a, a larger version of a smaller stuffed animal that she has, a uh, Daisy Duck, right? And I said, you know, she's one. She'll play more with that box that it comes in than the doll itself. I I, I had to interview a man one time, and he had committed bankruptcy, and he was on his way to his second. And I asked him, I said, why, why are you in this situation again? Well, you know, things come up and debt comes up. I'm not making as much money, and plus, you know, Christmas. I said, what is this personal loan that you took out here? He goes, that was for Christmas presents. The amount of money that he took out for a loan for Christmas presents so that his kids had something underneath the tree was the reason why he was in this situation he was in. You see, we think kids won't love us unless we give them the right gift. They won't be happy unless we give them the gift that all the other kids have. Your kids will teach you more about covetousness than you probably ever could teach them. Because in the world, the world says you got to have this. And what do we do as parents? In this society, in this culture, in this country, we do whatever we can to give them that. 
I'm not berating you for buying presents for your children. But let us not be captivated into thinking that that gives us value because it doesn't. You know, you may feel the pangs of debt because guess what? When you're in debt, you're a slave to the borrower. But never base your worth on them of who you are in Christ. That's settled. You're precious. Listen to this verse from Zephaniah. The Lord your God is in your midst. Mm. Mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. And he will quiet you with his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. This is one of hundreds of verses that speak to how he values you. Conversely, James is also addressing the rich and admonishing him to boast in his humiliation. Now, there are several interpretations of what James is referring to here. One interpretation is the rich man who has lost all of his wealth by way of trial brings about his humiliation in which he is to take pride in his circumstances in the same way the poor man took pride in his. The other interpretation is that James is speaking in spiritual terms, in that the rich man is before God and his salvation has no relationship to his wealth. In other words, taking that cultural stigmatism and throwing it out the window, that because you have wealth, that doesn't necessarily mean you are in good standing with God. And that his spiritual condition is the same as the poor man. Now, when we look at how people viewed during James, like we said, and they seen poverty as a sign of not being blessed, and wealth as a sign of being blessed, we kind of see what James is talking about. And so the rich man may have seen his wealth as a sign of God's favor, but when the Holy Spirit came to him and convicted him of his sin and unrighteousness and how he is in relationship to God absent of Christ, being an enemy of God and in need of salvation, now the man sees his humiliation in that without Christ he's lost. I don't know about you, but when the Lord put me on my knees, I seen my humiliation. I seen the crisis in me. And none of this mattered. Wealth, poverty, it didn't matter. I was poor in Christ. And when Christ saved me, I was rich in Him. regardless of what interpretation we use in understanding what James is saying here. And I would imagine that both would be easily acceptable. But the thing we're supposed to take away from James here is never place value in the things of this earth that we are to place in Christ. Never. Love this verse. Anytime I get nervous about stock markets and all that garbage, this is the verse. As for the rich and the present aged, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches.
but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. You know, every funeral that I go to, every funeral that I've done, and I praise God I haven't done many, not one time did the financial status of a person ever come up. Not once. It was either they were with the Father in heaven, or we don't know. None of your riches can go with you to heaven. None of them will follow you. Nothing what you accumulated. Naked you entered into this world. Naked you shall leave. So seek ye first the kingdom of heaven and all of its righteousness. And all those other things will be added unto you. You remember when Solomon prayed for wisdom? Right? The king. What should I pray for? Right? Prayed for wisdom. What did God bless him with? Everything else. Because his heart was right at the time. We know what happened later. Whether poor or rich, we are bankrupt spiritually without Christ. And regardless of where we find ourselves on the scale of wealth, whether poor or wealthy, our condition is temporary. It's temporal. It's not eternal. And if we find ourselves in the midst of a trial in poverty or in riches, as they equally bring challenges to our faith, let us not be defined by either and rejoice in our station in Christ and not in our station in the world. Remember, Paul says to be content in all situations. He learned that through experiences. We too will. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that through, his, through He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you, by His poverty, might become rich. You know what that verse is saying? We got it wrong. We flip it. Did you hear my grandkid? No. <laughs> We have a different, if we allow ourselves, we will see the value of the world. And Christ is saying, no, it's the value in me. And this takes us to the final truth as it relates to trials, as we find in verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. And this brings us to our final truth within this segment of text. Trials endured are trials rewarded. James in verse 2 reveals we will face trials of various kinds. We know that. And we shared a little bit about some of the trials that we faced in the last year. But we need to understand that all those various trials are part of an overall trial of life. For this life is one big trial. Until the day Christ comes and brings us home. And we progress in this life by way of sanctification. By way of the Holy Spirit continuously sanctifying our life. 
continuously bringing us through the process of becoming more like Christ Jesus. And as a result, we need to renew our mind. As a result, we need to disconnect from this world. And God uses trials to do that. In part. Therefore, by way of His working and by way of the Holy Spirit in separating us from our sinful nature and what the world attracts us to, He will refine us. He will mature us. He will perfect us until the day of Christ Jesus when He comes. We're also called to live holy lives. Remember that from 1 Peter? And in doing so, we will face trials of persecution. We will face trials of separation. But here's what James is saying in our final truth. The trial of life, if we endure to the end, we will receive the ultimate reward in Christ, the crown of life. The crown of life. Life on this earth does not provide and cannot provide the reward for our faith in Christ. Let me say that without emotion. <laughs> Life on this earth does not provide and cannot provide the reward for our faith in Christ. Only He can. Our reward is not of this world. It is not temporal. It is beyond any riches we will ever receive. It's beyond the pangs of poverty. It's beyond the pangs of sickness. Beyond the pangs of death, none of those will ever be felt again. We will be in complete joy in the presence of our Father forever, ever, ever. Walk away with this verse as it relates to the trials of life. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. This verse, remember we talked about you can have knowledge of verses, but it's the wisdom of God that brings the illumination and understanding as to how we are to walk in that verse. This verse came on a Thursday night men's Bible study downstairs, Pastor David and Miles, who was a retired highway um, police officer, highway patrol officer. His sister was dying of cancer and this is the scripture that she gave him. And because of her circumstances, his testimony, that scripture came alive. She was focused on heaven, not on this earth. And the sufferings that we will face in this world cannot be compared to the riches and glory that we're going to receive in Christ Jesus. That's our focus point as it comes to trials. Brothers and sisters, we will face trials of various kinds in this life. We will face trials in relationship to health. We will face trials in relationship to relationships. We will face trials in relationships to employment, wealth, and persecution. And as we have learned, these trials are necessary for our spiritual maturity and the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit to bring about perfection. 
In each trial we face, we are to acknowledge, we are to accept and invest in the six truths that James provides us as it relates to trials in order to produce that spiritual maturity in Christ. But in order for them to do so, we must apply right thinking. We must apply right action and right prayer to ensure these trials serve their purpose and grow us and how to navigate them. And regardless of where we find ourselves in the midst of trials, whether poor or wealthy, we must not allow them to determine our value and position in Christ, but recognize them as temporal and fleeting. Here today, gone tomorrow. And finally, when we endure them all the way to the end, we will receive the ultimate reward, the crown of life. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Father, that it is a lamp unto our feet. Thank you, Father God, that through it we get strengthened in our faith. Thank you, Lord, for the truth of your word, for it cannot lie. And so, Father, maybe today we're, we're facing a trial, and we know that tomorrow we will face one. Help us to face it as you prescribe to us in the way in which James' epistle instructs us so that, Father, we can learn from it and grow from it and mature in it. And, Father, let us always remember that you are our source of strength in the midst of a trial, and you will always give us wisdom as to how to deal with it and then give us the strength to do it. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand with us.